It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm John Lovett. I'm a little bit late. <laughs> Love it. Missed the time for today. Uh, you know, look, it was a holiday weekend. There's a lot going on. Did I see an 8.30 calendar invite? Yes. But did I still in my mind make it 9 o'clock? You bet I did. You bet I did. <laughs> but happens. I drove like the wind, guys. Tommy's joining us from Salt Lake City, where we were this weekend. Uh, our friend Shamik Dada got married. So uh, Tommy's hanging out there. You guys officiated. We did. We did. We did. Tommy and I officiated the wedding. It went the, very well. By the power invested in bros. It's actually, <laughs> it's actually by the power vested in. Power vested. That's right. You know why? Because I had invested and Tommy corrected it that right is, before the ceremony. I would have sounded <laughs> critical very stupid. Typo. That is really, yes. And I'm glad you corrected me. I wish it hadn't been on the podcast, but have, it's done now. Yeah, well, you know, there you go. Okay, guys. On today's show, we will have New York Congressman Adriano Espaillat, who uh, will be talking about Trump's decision to end the deferred action for childhood arrivals program which just happened within the last hour okay let's first talk about other pods pod save the people is out today on tuesday deray is talking to former education secretary arnie duncan uh, as well as the candidate for georgia governor stacy abrams oh that's great I'm yeah, excited about that. I know, me too. I want to have her on this podcast, uh, it's, too. And it's out right now. You can download it. Oh, awesome. Tommy, who's on Pod Save the World this week? Doug Lute, who was, uh, ran the Iraq and Afghanistan war for President Bush, stayed on with President Obama. We talked about what that was like, what he learned over 35 years in the military, six years in the White House, and two years as the U.S. ambassador to NATO. So he's pretty a person who sees the whole field and understands these issues like, like very few others. Uh, you will not want to miss it. Excellent. We will all check that out. Okay, so I want to talk about DACA, but let's start with North Korea, because we haven't talked about that yet. And Tommy, we have you here, so we're going to ask you all about it. On Sunday, North Korea tested a hydrogen bomb about seven times stronger than the bomb that the U.S. dropped on Hiroshima. It is the country's sixth nuclear test. This follows the uh, North Korea's launch of a missile into Japanese airspace on August 29th. Uh, there's also reports that they may fire more intercontinental ballistic missiles soon as well. Lovely. Tommy, I know we probably can't pinpoint this exactly, but what do we think Kim Jong-un wants here? What is his game plan, or at least what are some of the possibilities of, of what he's trying to do here? Uh, literally no one knows. Yeah. I mean, there's a theory that they think having a nuclear weapons program and, and having an ICBM capability where they could actually launch... Uh, a nuclear-tipped ICBM that could strike the United States provides them uh, a deterrent that they think will protect the survival of the regime. There's others who think that the continued uh, development and tests of these missiles and, and the nuclear tests are an effort to divide the alliance, divide up the U.S. and the, the Koreans and Japan and, and, and split us up uh, and try to, you know, create uh, diplomatic uh, friction that would you know, help them sort of get what they want, which is to get us to stop doing uh, military drills with South Korea or to get the U.S. to pull its troops out of South Korea entirely. So, I mean, there's a whole bunch of different theories. I think the best quote I've seen on this is that anyone who claims to know what he's thinking is, is probably lying or uh, if they really, really know, you're deep in the bowels of the CIA and you're probably not going to say anything. But it's, it's an incredibly dangerous situation. Yeah, it sounds like it. I, I was reading in the Times, New York Times, that you know they said the conventional wisdom thus far has been, like you just said, it's a defensive measure, it's to prevent regime change. But then I thought that there, some people in the Trump administration are now thinking that it's getting a little worse, which is potentially he can use this as blackmail. You know, the worst case there would be let us invade South Korea or else we'll nuke Los Angeles kind of thing. Or at least yeah. they're going to try to get away with smaller military provocations now, knowing that they have this this nuclear arsenal if anyone tries to fuck with them. Right. I mean, that, that's always sort of been one of the broader concerns about 
uh, proliferation of these weapons generally is that you could you don't necessarily have to launch a nuclear weapon to use it. You could give it to a terrorist group. You could, you know, sort of give it to some other bad actor. You could, you know, use it as a as a cudgel that you hang over your your adversaries that in and take increasingly uh, caustic steps and you know do things that uh, you might not be able to get away with before. So like. You know, there are a lot of scenarios here. None of them trend in a direction that feels uh, safer. <laughs> all of it, all of it is getting worse. And you know, this was their sixth nuclear test, but it was by far their most successful one. It's not clear if it was it was actually a hydrogen bomb. There's some some experts think that it was a boosted uh, conventional nuclear weapon, which is hmm. it's still bad. It's still a very successful test. But you know, the the hydrogen bomb we tested the Bikini Atoll in the 50s was like. A thousand times more powerful than what we dropped on Hiroshima. So, you know, they're, they've a ways to go before they are truly threatening us, uh, like China does or like Russia does. But you know, it, it's they're moving quickly. They're progressing quickly, uh, and that should be worrisome to everyone. It clearly is to the Trump administration. I mean, you when you read General Mattis's comments, when you read Nikki Haley's comments, like people are seized with this. They're very worried. The problem is that Trump's response is not helpful. I mean, tweeting criticism of the president of South Korea, essentially calling him weak for wanting to have a conversation is not helpful. Like floating that we're going to cut off all trade with anyone that does business with North Korea is not remotely feasible and is not helpful. So like there are these splits in the alliance that are developing that are the direct result of the things he's saying in response to these actions. But at the same time, what is helpful? Because we've had we've had several presidents who aren't Donald Trump who They've tried the diplomatic approach. They've tried the threatening approach, you know, from the Clinton administration, the Bush administration, the Obama administration. Things have progressed. And it seems like, is there any hope for any kind of a change? It just seems like we're moving inexorably toward a nuclear armed North Korea as a defense against regime change. And they don't seem bent on stopping and we don't seem to have the tools to stop them. Well, I mean, look, how we ultimately resolve this is the hardest problem in all of foreign policy. But I don't think it's hard to say that attacking the president of South Korea in the midst of all this is an unhelpful thing to do. I don't think it's you know surprising to say that like threatening to pull out of the US South Korea free trade agreement in the midst of all this is unhelpful. It's like what what has been useful in the past is getting all the relevant actors in these talks and these processes on the same page in approaching North Korea uh, with unanimity and going to the UN Security Council to get more sanctions with unanimity and using diplomacy and whatever other tools we have to get, you know, sanctions or to, you know, try to pressure the Chinese to reduce exports of oil or, or stop selling them coal. I mean, there's a whole bunch of additional economic pressure steps that we could take that get harder when you have a president of the United States that's seemingly more interested in tweeting criticisms of China or South Korea than like engaging them in a serious dialogue to try to get them to take the steps we need. That's sort of what I'm getting at. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny because in the outline I have, um, let's talk about the Trump administration response and then Trump response, because insanely, those two things are different. <laughs> They're very, very different. So like, like you were saying, Tommy, like his, his response was to attack South Korea on Twitter and to suggest cutting off the United States trade relationship with China, which is our biggest trading partner and like not just not feasible, but like economically catastrophic it's, for the United right. States. It's like Nikki Haley and Mattis and Kelly have a have a Snapchat filter that makes Donald Trump Mitt Romney. <laughs> so I mean, but like if if North Korea was able to take yeah. a bunch of steps that got the U.S. and China into a trade war, that's a big win for North Korea, <laughs> and that's a and it's a big loss for us, right? Right. Right. I mean, like they're our biggest trading partner by far. That would create a, an economic catastrophe. So we, we don't want that. Yeah. So so the so the less insane step. Let's talk about Nikki Haley. She was at the. Uh, she said she was trying to pressure the United States, the United Nations Security Council, to uh, cut off all oil and other fuels to North Korea. Specifically, trying to pressure China. Um, she also said the time has come for us to exhaust all of our diplomatic means before it's too late. So, a, you know, would this make a difference cutting off all oil and other fuels to North Korea if, if China did this? And and would China ever go for this? It's hard to know. I mean, I think ninety percent of North Korea's trade, basically. And almost all of its imported energy is from China. China's overall trade with the North was up in the last year or so. So there, there's some questions with, about whether this would only hurt regular people in North Korea who need to take a bus from one town or the other or, or need energy to eat their homes because in the military – 
is assumed to have stockpiles of, of energy that will last them a significant period of time. Um, there's also concern that they may lash out and do more. So, I mean, I think those are probably risks you have to take to to exert increased more pressure uh, on North Korea and on their military. But, you know, there's no guarantee, like Lovett was saying earlier, that any of those things are actually going to work and solve the overall problem. So South Korea's defense minister on Monday said it was worth reviewing the redeployment of American tactical nuclear weapons to the Korean Peninsula to guard against the North. What does that mean? Is that a good or bad idea? Would that ever happen? (laughs) A tactical nuclear weapon is one that is in some way small enough that it's seen as being able to be used on the battlefield. Hmm. So if there were a big tunnel that was used to get forces from one point to another, or I don't know, some sort of like route that they were going through that you might be able to take out completely. You could use a tactical nuke. I I think it sort of sounds insane on its face. I think a lot of these things you want to throw into a bucket of things that are designed to sort of reassure the South Korean government or military or people that were on their side, that they'll help them, that will continue to escalate. But, you know, you hear these things that are getting floated, like requesting permission to increase the payload on South Korean uh, missiles so that they can, you know, use them uh, more effectively against North Korean targets. I mean, all of this is so escalatory in a region that uh, is fraught and tense to begin with. I mean, none of it, none of it sounds good. Like all these things that we're talking about are military solutions and there's seemingly no diplomatic track going on and you have a president tweeting that talks are weak and that you know talking is not the answer you know one thing i saw people talking about over the weekend is the larger context for this kind of diplomacy and people were noting that libya iraq that these are examples of countries where kim jong-un can look at these countries and say if i don't have nuclear weapons this is my fate Uh, how much damage to our ability to convince someone like Kim Jong-un that giving up nuclear weapons peaceably is the best step he can take for himself personally has American policy of regime regime change caused? It's a great question. I, I think it's, I mean, I think obviously Iraq was seen by most people as a disaster. I think the more and more you step back from Libya and hear the way it's talked about in scenarios like this, uh, you know, with Qaddafi sort of being literally killed in the streets uh, because he gave up this capability. It it does make you step back and wonder and and rethink. I mean, ultimately, that was, you know, supposed to be a humanitarian intervention to save, you know, several hundred thousand people in Benghazi from getting massacred by Qaddafi's troops and forces. And it and it escalated into a broader NATO mission that ended up toppling the government and leading to regime change. But, yeah, I mean, you know, look, it's, it's a whole part of the list of unintended consequences that come from these things. So for all the shit the Republicans have given Obama over the years about red lines, it seems like with North Korea, Trump is sort of drawing and then erasing red lines as this crisis progresses. It seems like the latest is Mattis saying that basically the, the, the new line is if we're threatened with attack. And I was sort of confused, like, what does it mean to be threatened with attack? Like, at what point does it seem likely that we would strike North Korea or take some sort of military action. Yeah, I'm confused by, I mean, it it seems like apparently we're now defining red line is only when you say, here's my red line, but uh, (laughs) it does appear to be shifting. I was not entirely sure what that meant either, because it seems unlikely that they're going to say, hey, here's the ICBM with the weapon on it. We're going to attack you now. And then you sort of respond. North Korea (laughs) issues threats against us on a semi-daily basis. (laughs) Right. Yeah, they have the most over-the-top rhetoric in the history of the world. I mean, at the end of the day, like, these guys have so much artillery pointed at Seoul, where tons of American civilians live, where we have uh, 28,500 U.S. service members serving. And there's also now apparently have the range to hit Guam, the range to hit Japan. So there's um, a lot of of terrible scenarios where uh, military intervention is taken. Really doesn't seem like there's any uh, good outcomes here, huh? Happy Tuesday, everybody. No, I mean, look, diplomacy won't necessarily solve every problem, but there was always seemingly some value to having an ongoing diplomatic process. Like talks in the Middle East between the Israelis and Palestinians could sort of calm things. Um, I think, you know, that was not necessarily the case in North Korea. Like there were talks and then their North Koreans were cheating behind the scenes and that was incredibly problematic. But like there has been no diplomatic track that we've seen. And I I think that has made things worse. So just like one last thing on North Korea, 
Are there any Hail Marys, totally out there policies, totally new approaches that people are talking about? I mean, normalizing relations, doing something completely unexpected or, you know, that had been whatever considered unacceptable or not appropriate for a long time because we're in this desperate situation in which nothing we have done in the past seems to have worked. The one I saw was Henry Kissinger has apparently been pitching an idea where we go to the Chinese and say, we talk about what happens after the North Korean state falls. Uh, and we commit to them that we will pull U.S. troops out of South Korea. We will get our guys off the peninsula so they don't view this as sort of American military just creeping north closer and closer to their territory. That's sort of like the one kind of interesting Hail Mary that I've seen. I don't have an opinion on it because what the hell do I know? But right. um, yeah, but so that, <laughs> to answer your question. Would, that would be about convincing China to do what they've been afraid to do, which is actually put the economic screws to North Korea to the point where the state would collapse. It would be exactly. a terribly punishing thing for the millions and millions of people there. But that would, because that's Henry Kissinger, but uh, that's one idea for something un- different. Yeah, I mean, it would be terribly punishing in the short term, I guess, he could maybe argue that in the long term, not having to live under Kim Jong-un right. uh, is beneficial. But yeah, I mean, it's all about them. Their overarching concern being that the North Korean state collapses, millions of refugees go over the border, uh, or the peninsula reunifies and suddenly an American ally is right on their doorstep as opposed to having a buffer of North Korea between the two. But you know, I have no idea if they would listen to that or not. Yeah, it seems like China has to become more concerned about a nuclear attack launched by North Korea than they are about a refugee crisis, a refugee crisis or the United States and South Korea sort of being at their border. Yeah. Um, well, luckily we have uh, the deal maker, the great Trump, able to deftly navigate <laughs> these delicate issues. Wonderful. When we come back, we will talk about another happy topic, uh, Jeff Sessions' announcement that Donald Trump will end the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. We will cover that as soon as we're back. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down. Not do what generations of New Englanders have done. Just stuff their feelings down. Maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No. You got to talk to someone. You got to work it out. Get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Okay, Attorney General Jeff Sessions made an announcement just now that Donald Trump will be ending the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival program in six months. If you are currently a DACA recipient, you can renew your permit for another two years. So, as long as your renewal is within the six months. Correct. But no new requests for permits will be acted upon. Trump was too much of a politically weak coward <laughs> to say this himself, and Sessions refused to answer any questions 
about a decision that may lead to the deportation of 800,000 young people who have lived in America for most of their lives. Just to review, so everyone knows what a DACA recipient is, the average age they came to the United States was six years old. The average age of them right now is 26. 91% are employed. 100%, 100% have no criminal record. They pay $500 to renew this permit every two years, and that gives them the opportunity to work in the United States and pay Social Security and other taxes. I would say this is probably the cruelest decision that Donald Trump has made since becoming president. Yes, I think just ending DACA is the cruelest thing that Donald Trump could do. It is true that he put a six-month window on it. And because it's Trump, we can't trust them to do anything about it, to successfully pursue a legislative strategy to fix it. But at the same time, clearly he could have ended it outright today if he wanted to. So, Well, here's why that's bullshit. I know that was a lot of the reporting leading up to this. I know there's all the... White House sources have said that Trump is not sure, and and I know Maggie Haberman at the New York Times and people at Politico also believe this, that at the end of the six months, perhaps he just quietly extends it because, you know, he didn't really want to end it. I think if that was the case, you would not have... Jeff Sessions came out today, that statement said, it is being rescinded. There is a letter sent, the program is being phased out. It is done. So they are giving a transition period, but it did not appear by any means today that Jeff Sessions, the way that he made that announcement, what he actually said at the press conference, is that he was leaving room for this. We don't know if Trump would sign legislation that passes Congress to protect this program. Right. So there's there's no indication that so, that would happen. Yeah. I mean, so this is the problem, one of the many problems with the Trump administration. You know, he consistently tries to use his innate cruelty as leverage, but is too incompetent and undisciplined to successfully do that. He's doing that with the Obamacare exchanges and trying to sabotage them now to no end whatsoever, given that the legislation is dead. Uh, He is now threatening 800,000 young people with DACA who now are panicked and terrified because they have no idea if their status will continue beyond this renewal period. Now, but at the same time, you can see how this is, this is Trump as a worse and crueler version of where the Republican Party is, where Jeff Sessions is, where Tom Cotton is, you could imagine another Republican president announcing a plan to phase out DACA as part of a strategy to get something out of Congress, to get border funding, to get a comprehensive bill. Now, because it's Trump, there is no strategy. There's no one competent. You know, there's a a general overseeing a bunch of goons uh, who have no ability to work with Congress. If anything, Donald Trump has been a hindrance uh, when it comes to working with Congress. So it's terrifying because he's playing chicken with people's lives, but he has no idea how to work the machine. So it's horrible on that front. That being said, we have a six-month period in which Congress can protect these young people. You know, I, I see Democrats today saying, okay, you want to, you know, Paul Ryan, you say this should be left up to Congress. Uh, Jeff Sessions, you think this should be up to Congress. You know, the we can talk about the constitutional issues and whether or not it's legal. And, you know, the vast majority of, of sort of the legal scholars say yes, but it's a extension of presidential power. You want to debate that? Fine. Put it through Congress as a clean bill. Or you want to talk about comprehensive reform? This is your big play for immigration reform, even though you've not talked about that and you've said how oh, tax reform is the next thing. Fine. But like, Clearly, Donald Trump didn't want to go out in front of the podium and appease his base and end this thing. And that is a glimmer of hope on this issue. Tommy? Yeah, I mean, I second everything you guys said about the cruelty. I, I, like, it also seems just pretty un-American to punish a kid for something their parents did when they were four or five years old. God help all of us if that were, if that were the law in this country. I, I find myself increasingly confused by the politics of the issue because you see polling where this like 64, 65 percent of Americans – support DACA, but but Trump is throwing this back into a Republican Congress and asking them to fix it when nearly all of them voted against the DREAM Act uh, in 2010. So it doesn't it doesn't seem like there's a ton of hope there because there is so much uh, anti-immigration sentiment in the Republican base. So, I mean, in a weird way, you're seeing these soundings from members of Congress who are talking about their, you know, how concerned they are about this choice, I just wonder if any of them will muster the political will to do something about it. I, yeah. I'm not hopeful. I'm not too hopeful either. And you're right. I actually saw a poll this morning that said something like 86% supported 
people who were, came here when they were five years old staying. And when you get to teenage years, it's like 83%. So it, you're right, it's mm-hmm. overwhelming. I think, yeah. Tommy, that the, that the politics on this has actually changed in a very short time. Because back in 2010, when Obama tried to pass this legislation, you not only had a bunch of Republican or almost all Republicans voting against this, uh, John Tester voted against it in the Senate. Joe Manchin yep. wasn't there for the vote, but said he would have opposed it. So you had some Democrats even opposing this as well. I don't think you'd find any Democrats today who would oppose this. I think the politics have shifted. And you had Paul Ryan, Orrin Hatch, some others say we should fix the president. Trump should not do this and we should fix this legislatively in the Congress. But whether they'll be able to do that or not is you know, we don't know. Uh, as Lovett said, there's a six-month window. I don't. I think that six-month window is probably that's up to now us, to activists, to everyone else, to put enormous pressure on Congress to do something about this. John, what do you think Democrats should be doing right now? What should our position be? Our position should be introducing another version of the Dream Act or whatever the there's. Uh, we were saying this on Thursday, there's a version of the DREAM Act that Dick Durbin and Lindsey Graham introduced. It's a bipartisan bill. It's a it's a very good piece of legislation. It would protect all these 800,000 young people. And they should introduce it, and Democrats should be pounding the pavement on it every single day. I so, mean, it should, that, that should be, they should demand it. They should scream it from the rooftops. Yeah, I agree with that. At the same time, right, the politics have changed. It's, Democrats have shifted to the left. There was this video circulating over the weekend, which showed George H.W. Bush and Ronald Reagan debating basically this issue and both of them bending over backwards to show that they were more compassionate, which was a totally reasonable and, you know, reasonable thing to see. And look, these are not these are not two people that I think were particularly compassionate in their policies as president. But there you have it. It seems like the Republicans in a lot of ways have shifted to the right. Democrats have shifted a lot of ways to the left on this issue. Okay, so we're going to say, give us a way to make these kids, let them stay. You have a six-month window, let them stay. And then if Republicans haven't gone for that before, Paul Ryan says, let's have a legislative solution. Of course, he voted against the legislative solution when he had the chance. Right. So Trump and the, and the Republicans come back and say, we want border security, we want a wall. I mean, what what do we say to that? Do we say, we'll be for that as long as these kids are protected? We'll be for that as long as you do something for these kids and the other millions of people who are here? I mean, is this... Do we give in to this wall nonsense to try to get something through Congress? That's where I think the politics are so strange from the White House. It's because you you have keeping DACA as a very popular program, funding a wall that people increasingly believe will not work in any way is is not as popular a program anymore. So I feel like he's thrusting Republicans into a very tough political situation, whereas Democrats can just push for straight a straight Dream Act type legislative fix, right? Yeah, well, I mean, exactly, Tommy, because. The, Love it. What you're saying is it's so hypothetical right now because there is no unified Republican plan. There is no plan on the table at all. Right. There is a few Republicans who said maybe we get a wall down payment in or and then pass a, a version of the Dream Act, but not every Republican's on board with that. Not even a majority of Republicans are on board with that. Uh, Tom Cotton is saying he'll only do it, pass the Dream Act, if you uh, curb legal immigration and lower immigration levels, like in the plan that Stephen Miller wrote. But that's only Tom Cotton. There's some people who would just do a straight Dream Act bill like Lindsey Graham. So you don't have a unified Republican position on this. So Democrats, there's no reason that Democrats should start negotiating against themselves already when there has not been. The Republican Party broke this and now the Republican Party has to offer a plan to fix it. That's where we should start right now. Okay, I agree with that. Yeah, (laughs) this is the Trump problem because, you know, uh, Ben Smith wrote something in BuzzFeed over the weekend, which I thought was good. He says, Donald Trump always shoots the hostage. Right. That that <laughs> he has this leverage, right? On Obamacare, he had leverage over the exchanges. On on DACA, he has leverage over these young people. He's leverage. And he spends it in this capricious and undisciplined way without any strategy because there's no one good around him who has the ability to do this. And he himself has absolutely no idea what he's doing and lacks the discipline, resolve, or values to, to care enough to see anything through. The man wants a wall. If he, if he went out there today and said, I believe the DACA program is illegal and unconstitutional. I don't believe we should be kicking out these kids, but we have this huge problem of illegal immigration and we've allowed this to go on for 30 years, give me border security and we can figure out the immigration thing together. If he was some, if he wanted to use this, 
he could do it. But there's no impetus. There's no goals to any of this. It's absolutely ridiculous. Well, but love it. See that you just made the point where, like, that's why your original point about how I'm, like you're thinking it a lot, a, thinking it through. No, but like that there's like a glimmer <laughs> of hope and all this stuff that he didn't really want to end it. No, that's all fucking bullshit. If he really didn't want to end it, you don't send Jeff Sessions out, who's the biggest opponent of this, and says it is over. It is done. Jeff Sessions did not urge Congress to pass a solution. He didn't do anything. Right. So there's you signal no, to your there base is no public, with Jeff Sessions. There is no public statement from the administration today that they actually want Congress to fix it and they're going to sign it. Zero. If but, so, if Trump really wanted to fix it, he would have done exactly what you just said, Lemon. Right. But at the same time, he is worried about his base and he doesn't want to seem like he's appeasing these people to his base. So you send out the most hardliner to say, I'm ending this thing. But that itself is not necessarily a single he does signal he doesn't want a legislative fix. Again, we know nothing. And the answer is unknowable yeah. because Donald Trump wants nothing. Right. But That's just right. because he sends out his most his most hardline person doesn't mean that a legislative fix is impossible. That's right, Tommy. But it's, it's just so fun. Like, <laughs> You have this very hard immigration problem. And seemingly the only solution being floated is a very expensive wall that no one thinks will work. And we're throwing this into the mix in the middle of a month where you're going to have a debt ceiling fight. And you're going to have a massive piece of legislation coming up to fund Harvey relief efforts. And you have a Category 5 Hurricane Irma barreling down on Miami. It's like, what are they doing? The, 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 there is no chance in my mind that that Congress is going to be able to take on something this large and fraught and challenging, which I guess just speaks to the fact that the Stephen Millers and Jeff Sessions of the world know that by pushing this now, it will it will end DACA. And that's ultimately and they want. Look, and yeah. they don't care if the process is messy. And we should keep in mind that for there will be a lot of talk today about how Trump is cruel. Trump did a bad thing. Trump is incompetent. But this is a bigger problem of like the Trump era here where we only focus on Trump and not any other parts of the politics that are broken. If the Republican Congress does not fix this program, every single member of that Congress is as guilty as Donald Trump Absolutely. on DACA. They are, they have, it's not like they rubber stamp Donald Trump's agenda, blah, blah, blah. Like, no, 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 no. Paul Ryan and Orrin Hatch and all the, and Lindsey Graham and all the rest of them, if they cannot pass this, they are just as guilty and cruel as Donald Trump and, on DACA. And every one of them has made this argument about the, le- the legality. You can concede that this is an extension of presidential authority. Like, you can even be uncomfortable with the fact that in an extraordinary situation where we have this basically huge extra-legal population of people that aren't Americans because they weren't born here but have lived in this country all their life, and you could say the president did something extraordinary. It's, it's an extension of presidential power. I don't support it. That's why Congress should act. So do it. You'll have every Democratic vote. It can pass. But Paul but Paul Ryan is afraid to do it because he's afraid of the same people Donald Trump is afraid of, which is why he sends Jeff Session out to do his dirty work. Which, by the way, they're afraid because they don't want to make a very simple case, right? Like they know that the Breitbarts and Fox Newses and everyone of the world was going to say they let a bunch of illegals in here and legals stay here and blah, blah, blah. And they're ignoring the fact that these people are American. That they are American in every single way, but they're and it's it's almost weird that we ca- talk about them as DACA recipients. We use this fucking weird acronym like we do with everything else, I know. I and we it. and we we talk about them like there is a separate group of people. They are just like you and I. They they have been here since six years old. They don't have another country to go home to because they don't know. Many of them don't have families in the countries they came from. They've never lived there. They've never been there. They've they've grew up in Los Angeles and Miami and all over the country. And they work here and they pay taxes and they study and. They defend this country, and they're in the military. It is unconscionable that we are going to expel these people from and their home country for no reason. It is a made-up crisis. <laughs> it's a made-up crisis. You know, we talked Ruby Martinez, who works at, I believe, UCLA. She was on Love It or Leave It talking about this, and she's a DACA recipient, and she just talked about how terrifying it is and how heartbreaking it is and how DACA finally gave people legal status, not just sort of the technical paperwork so they could legally get a job, but a feeling like they could plan for their futures and think about their futures because they knew that they weren't going to be deported in the middle of the night. And now all that fear comes rushing back. Yeah. And one of these young Americans uh, is a paramedic who worked six straight days rescuing Harvey victims. And we found out that one was killed trying to rescue others during Harvey. uh, And the government won't even give his mother a humanitarian visa to come to Houston so she can bury her son. So... These are the stories we're dealing with. We should tell everyone, um, if you want to stop this, obviously call your congressman, uh, call your senator's office. I think we should, you know, start up everything we did during the the fight to save the Affordable Care Act. And if we can, you know, I know there's 
activists that are holding rallies and they're protesting and they're standing outside of the Capitol today. United We Dream is a good place to go to find out uh, what you can do to take action on this. And, uh, and we'll be telling you guys a lot of other places to go and to go help over the, over the coming days and weeks. I, there was one thing we forgot, which is that, uh, that Jared and Ivanka are against the, the end of DACA. Um, yeah, and I'm glad you didn't make that point because I'm sick of talking about those two because they're useless fucking they are people. Useless. They're useless. All the fucking moderates in the White House are useless. I don't want to hear about them. I don't want to think about them. I don't care about them. Fuck them all. Cool. <laughs> okay. When we come back, we will talk to New York Congressman Adriano Espiat about this DACA decision. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. On the pod today, we are very lucky to be joined by New York Congressman Adriano Espaillat. Congressman, you were the first Dominican-American to serve in Congress. You're also the first member of Congress to have been undocumented as an immigrant when you were a child. Tell us a little bit about your background and what it was like to be undocumented in America. Well, I came here at the age of nine. I came with my parents on a visitor's visa, and we overstayed our visa. And then we had to go back to the DR and get my uh, legal residency. So that's the status of how we got here. Uh, but, you know, for some time we were without that without our documentation and uh, we were able to finally get our green car and the rest is history. So you wrote a letter to Donald Trump recently asking him to save the Deferred Action Program. Obviously today, Attorney General Jeff Sessions said it's illegal and that they'll be rescinding the program in six months. What's your response? I think that he lied to the dreamers and he lied to the American people when he said that they should rest easy. Uh, and so, again, we see today how he turned his back on them and the American people, and it's really a troubling time in America when the president says one thing and does another. He's put this six-month window on this thing. Uh, are you hopeful that Congress can act in the next six months to protect these young people? Well, you know, we have a lot on our table. Uh, Harvey in Texas and money for that. Uh, we have uh, a lot of initiatives that must be addressed, but I see nothing that has more that should have more priority than this. So, what do you think the prospects for passage of a Dream Act in Congress are right now? How how do you go about getting some of your Republican colleagues on board? Well, there are some Republican colleagues that seem to want to assist the Dreamers. In fact, even Paul Ryan has said that instructed or asked uh, the president not to dismantle the program. Uh, there are senators, uh, several Republican senators, uh, that also supported the Dreamers, and even one of the attorney generals that was involved in the, delega- in the litigation and threatening uh, to include the DACA students in the current litigation they have on immigration uh, dropped out of the lawsuit. So there is some sentiment out there in support of them, and I am hopeful that this uh, item will take priority when we get back today to uh, D.C., so, as you said, you have a, Congress has a lot on its table, from Harvey to the debt ceiling to keeping the government running to, obviously, uh, tax reform has been something they claim that they're going to do next. What legislative steps do you think are worth taking now? Is it worth holding up government funding as much as we can in the Senate? How far should we push to get these DACA recipients saved in the next six months? Well, there's two pieces of legislation, one introduced by Congressman Gutierrez, the American Hope Act, and the other one by Senator Durbin, the Bridge Act, which seem to uh, want to address this particular issue. I think we should begin discussions around these two 
legislative proposals and try to bring closure and a solution to them as quickly as possible. Uh, certainly what we don't want is for this DACA discussion to be linked uh, to funding the building of the wall or throwing another monkey wrench in the way of these 800,000 uh, young people, 60% of which are working, uh, 48% of which already have a bank account, uh, and seeing some level of increase in their salary, 30% of them already have a credit card. So it's not only inhumane to uh, disconnect them from their experience as, as American, it's, it's economic malpractice as well. And so I ask that this be set as a priority and that we begin the discussion of these two pieces of legislation that have gained bipartisan support, and we can make this a priority when we get back to D.C. today. What would sensible immigration reform look like if we were doing sort of a comprehensive type of immigration reform right now? Because obviously what we need to fix the system goes far beyond protecting uh, these young Americans. Well, you know, a comprehensive immigration reform will bring a, a pathway to First, a, a, a legal residency, a conditional legal residency, permanent legal residency, and ultimately citizenship. And so this is what uh, most countries that engage in a comprehensive immigration reform system or initiative, this is what they put forward. And it should not be any different uh, in America. So uh, we must bring some level of uh, process through which undocumented people become uh, get a conditional legal residency uh, that will then uh, uh, become permanent legal residency, a green card, if you may, with the ultimate goal that they may have a pathway to citizens down the road if they abide and play by the rules, they work, if they pay their taxes, why not make them American? So as part of comprehensive reform, there's always been a border security component of it. Would you support that, having border security and uh, restrictions on legal immigration as part of a comprehensive plan that included well, helping that the dreamers? strengthen our borders. I don't believe in building a wall. Uh, we can uh, put more border patrol. We can uh, deal with uh, technology that's available right now to uh, secure the, the, the border better. I think the wall is a bad symbol. It's, it doesn't help security in, in, in in no way, shape, or form, and, and it's really costly, and it sends a bad message across the world that America is now, uh, you know, a close society, that it is a, a close society to people, for, to outsiders, if you may. And so uh, there's no objection from me in strengthening border protection, although I would not support the building of a wall. But so the wall is like a dumb thing Donald Trump backed into because he got applause at his rallies. Yes, it's a bad idea, and perhaps he got, you know, he, he heard the applause and felt that, you know, he would get some uh, political cheap shot uh, from it uh, uh, and boost his, uh, his ratings, and, and, and now he's, he's sort of like committed to it. But I don't see how it works. It will be costly. How can you take money? build a wall when we really got to rebuild Houston right now and Texas. Uh, so this is where we're at right now. Con Congressman, uh, what are you telling your constituents who may be affected by the Trump administration rescinding DACA? Well, first and foremost, I'm telling them to be serene and, and, and to be uh, uh, waiting for uh, our, the legal interpretation, the correct legal interpretation of what all of this means. We're looking to see how we will counteract this, uh, both politically and socially. But most importantly, each person uh, should feel reassured that we have the social service safety net of legal services that will be able to interpret what this means to each and every one of them, because every case, of course, may, be, uh, may have different circumstances. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us. And, uh, and Thank you. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Have a good day. Take care. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
also love it. There's a great story in the New York Times by Neil Irwin. Uh, it was on Sunday that uh, I would encourage everyone to read. Uh, it tells the story of two janitors making comparable pay. Gail Evans, who worked in Co- for Kodak in the 1980s, and Marta Ramos, who works for Apple today. Here's a big difference. Evans was a full-time employee with four weeks paid vacation. Kodak reimbursed a portion of her college tuition. She was mentored and trained by other people in the company, and she ultimately became chief technology officer at Kodak. Ramos, on the other hand, is a paid contractor, hasn't taken a vacation in years, can't afford college, hasn't received any bonuses, and has no opportunity for advancement at Apple. Yeah, and what's what's interesting is they roughly make the same. Yeah. Uh, at, even in counting for inflation, basically, they have the same income, but just one of the jobs is upwardly mobile and the other is not. And it's basically a story of how companies are driving inequality today by paying middle and lower wage employees less than they used to and outsourcing work to cheaper part-time contractors. And I thought it was interesting in the context of the tax reform debate that we're having today. Trump is meeting with uh, his two White House aides who are former Goldman Sachs executives as well as Republican congressional leaders to talk about tax reform. And the main plank of reform is bringing the corporate rate down from 35%. Trump wants 15 Congress wants 20 25 whatever. They're going to pay for this, pay for some of it, because they might not pay for all of it. it. might just blow up the deficit. But they want to pay for some of it by possibly um, taxing workers' 401k contributions, cutting home mortgage deductions, penalizing voters in the highest, highest tax states like California and New York. By getting rid of the uh, the local and state deduction. Correct. So I can't believe that this dream team of of Mnookin, Cohn, Ryan, and McConnell landed on reducing corporate tax rates by increasing taxes on everybody else. The thing about this is so outrageous is it actually also goes to their Medicaid cuts, too. It is, it is so ideological to the point of being self-defeating. We actually do have a corporate tax rate problem in this country. I don't care where the rate lands, but we have a jury-rigged Rube Goldberg contraption of lobbyist-financed tax breaks and loopholes that riddle the corporate tax rate to the point where, even though we have a internationally high corporate tax rate, on average, companies pay less. And then some companies pay zero. Some companies pay the main rate. It's really, really unfair. So you want to reform the corporate tax rate? That's something that makes you really excited. More power to you. There is no reason whatsoever to pay for a reduction in the corporate tax rate with money taken from the individual earners in this country. You want to you want to cut loopholes? Go crazy. Have a good time. But then you're going to pay for it by making people pay more taxes on their uh, 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 on their houses or pay more taxes on their retirement savings. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Seems like there's a bigger issue here, which is the defining challenge of our time that we have not been able. Political challenge, economic challenge, is that we do not have an economy that is providing for average workers. We have not figured out how to respond to globalization as a country and how what to do about companies that are outsourcing jobs, that are uh, using automation technology. We've talked about on Positive America a million times. We're, it, we're very comfortable saying that in the 2016 election, Hillary Clinton did not break through with an economic message that would, meant some, you know, would have meant something for working people, right? And we sort of now, I read the story and I'm like, we sort of lose sight of the economic challenge at the heart of all of our political problems with all these other Trump fights that we're having right now. And for the longest time, the Republican Party's answer to that story about those two workers in different times working at Kodak and Apple is everyone's being strangled with regulations and high taxes. And if we only lower regulation, if we only cut regulation and lower taxes, everything will be fine. We saw through the 2000s. That's not true. Right. That didn't work in the Bush administration. Yeah, They've, they've said growth would solve every problem. But it said, do, it and it did. And there was always also a wink and a nod for the Republican Party to, oh, and by the way, yeah, maybe immigrants are taking your jobs, too. Right. That was always a subtext. Now, that is the primary plank of Donald Trump's campaign and administration. Right. Donald Trump's answer to that story, that New York Times story, is immigrants are taking your jobs and foreign workers are taking them when their companies are outsourcing them. That's that's his now, his problem. But he still has this Republican Party with Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell and his Goldman crew who are saying, no, 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 cut the corporate tax rate. They Fundamentally, I think that 
The Republican Party just does not recognize economic inequality of, as one of the great challenges in the economy. They, they view it as a problem, but they view it as a problem you can solve, again, still with deregulation and growth, except for Donald Trump, who ran on this nationalist platform. But at the same time, the Democratic Party's answers are have been insufficient. You know, that was what I was thinking as I was reading the story. And I actually was thinking of another story that came out over the weekend, which is the fact that on college campuses... Mm-hmm. Most colleges now are employing huge numbers of adjunct professors uh, who are not full time, who uh, don't make as much money, who are not on tenure track. And I found myself making a connection between the contracted janitors at Apple HQ and a, a young grad student who can't get a job as a professor and people driving for ride sharing companies. And then you look at what Democrats are offering and it it's at the kind of the end of this structural inequality, right? It's it's earned income tax credits and raising the minimum wage and shifting uh, to a more progressive tax system. Now, those are all really smart things to do. If you look at an economy that all the gains and all the rewards are going to the top uh, to the top earners and to the corporate and, and to corporations like companies like Apple sitting on tens of billions of dollars, trillions not investing in the economy. If you look at that and you say, what we need to do is cut corporate taxes and and widen the base so uh, you shift the burden of the of taxes onto middle class people. That's insane. But at the same time, our answer is sort of at the as at the kind of mouth of the river. Like we're not at the problem, which is what we do about the fact that that a technologically sophisticated globalized economy has left working people without the leverage that they used to have. And I was also, you know, the decline of unions is part of this. The fact that we're now I think it's down to six point seven percent of it was Labor Day. Six point seven percent of the private sector is now unionized, the lowest rate that it's been in a hundred years. You can make a connection between rising economic inequality and the decline of unions in the private sector. So we have this, these big structural forces, consolidation of, of, of companies into these behemoths that are not resu- not responsive either to their workers or to consumers, to automation that has made people more productive, which means you need fewer employees. So, you know, when the center left and the center right are failing to offer solutions to these fundamental problems, you have people like Donald Trump who can emerge from the wreckage and say, all of your mistrust, all your anger, it's fair. Here's who you can point it at. So what should Democrats do then? What's the plan? You know, that's a great question, John. <laughs> there you but, go. but no, but we've been talking with look, we you know, you and I and Tommy, you know, we've we've started this company and and it's gave us this platform and, and and we're talking to people, people that we can sit down and have conversations with. And we put this question to a lot of different kinds of people. And the answers aren't great. There's a you know, it's it's really, really hard. But so it's actually just something, you know, I, I, mean, I am fascinated by this question because I think that that answering this question is fundamentally the answer to how we can win in our politics, but also just actually help people. I mean, it seems like there's only three. Well, as as Democrats or people on the left in general, it seems like we would say there's uh, three different components to fixing this problem. Uh, one is making sure there are jobs that pay well for people, right? That seems to be almost the trickiest thing to to legislate or to create a policy around. Uh, the second plank would be making sure that people have the skills and education to get the jobs that pay well. Now, I did some digging into the good old Better Deal plan, which, again, part of the problem with Better Deal is you lead with the slogan, no one knows what's in the deal. Everyone only knows there was an argument about the slogan. But if you look in there, they have tax incentives for employers that invest in workforce training and education, apprenticeship for workers. Now, we can certainly argue over, like, do tax incentives really make a difference or should we require apprenticeships and skills training and stuff like that? Whatever. We can have that debate. But it seems like you need some sort of robust program in this country where employers or the government or whatever are offering people apprenticeships, uh, training, skills. Just like, I mean, that's how that woman at Kodak was able to become chief technology officer is she got all these apprentice programs and skill training programs. And the people who do succeed at some companies today are getting all those kinds of skills-based training. And then the third bucket of things is making sure and you, you know, that you have all of sort of the safety net and the, and the benefits to sort you know, whether it's vacation, child care, living wage, retirement. And perhaps we should be talking about a robust program for contractors, independent workers, part-time employees, so that they're getting the same kind of benefits and guarantees that full-time workers are yeah, getting in this country. That's interesting. Yeah. So, so stepping back from like, yeah, let's look at, look at those pieces. So, Yes. You know, and this is why I think Bernie campaigning on universal college 
was right. important and important thing to happen for the democratic debate. So whether it's apprenticeship programs that are funded by the government or that we make an intensive for companies to do themselves, you're right. Sort of training, universal higher education available to people. I mm-hmm. think that's part of it. One other piece of this, by the way, is immigration reform, because getting people out of the shadows uh, and legal is one of the ways you make sure that people aren't being paid under the table less. And you can see wages start to rise because pressure on wages at the bottom is a piece of this. The other part of it is consolidation of big companies. Big one. And that was in the better deal. That is too. in the better deal. And even people on the left applauded that as well. And I, and I do think cons- consolidation is a huge... I mean. Automation is a tough one, and we have not found any good answers on the automation we know, challenge. And we've asked, but and we're cons- asking. But consolidation of companies is something that government can do something about. And in fact, many on the left, including our, us, would argue <laughs> that government exists to do something about. And, and this is one of those places where uh, the left critique of the donor class having too much influence is really important because certain things become impossible to imagine, right? The breaking up of big companies uh, that treat consumers like shit and don't pay their employees enough because they're monopolies or monopolistic or part of like a, you know, a trio of companies that are setting prices together and kind of dividing up in the country into into feudal, right. into feudal manners uh, seems impossible when you're raising money from all of these places. But uh, I think we need to sort of widen the scope of what's possible. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 you know, the union question, I think, is a, is a really hard one because the decline of private sector unions has has had an impact. You, know, you 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 think about this, you know, contractor who isn't in charge of their hours. And by the way, this extends beyond sort of contractors at big companies. This is a problem for a lot of people, from Walmart to Starbucks to uh, a lot of you know a lot of service economy jobs. You know, it's not just that they're not making enough and the minimum wage isn't high enough. People can't count on their hours. They can't count on a promotion. It has no, you know, you can't build a life when your shift is going to be moved around. So figuring out ways to protect people, and and that can't always come from the government. It's very difficult for the government to regulate how a company sets its hours. I mean, you can tell, you can maybe, I think Elizabeth Warren has a bill about making sure that there's notice for when people's hours are shifted. I'm not, I don't really know the details, honestly, but that is about unions. That's what unions used to do, yeah. to make sure people got paid when they were, when they showed up to work and that that they could count on uh, a reasonable day and a reasonable wage. So, yeah. you know, these are really hard questions. And yeah. Donald Trump lying to people doesn't fix them. Yeah. No, I mean, I, mean, I brought up the story because this is the central challenge of our time. It is what is on voters' minds, whether you voted for Trump or Clinton, or at least some people that voted for Trump, <laughs> some people that voted for Clinton. It is, it is a top issue on voters' minds, what to do about the challenges of globalization. Donald Trump, we have said a million times, it's no secret that we think he has no good and practical answers to this. We do not believe the Republican Party, the establishment Republican Party, has any good or practical answers to this. If anything, they, this. Make this, they make matters worse. And, and Democrats must find an answer in 2018, 2020, and beyond to this question, uh, they need to think about Marta Ramos working at Apple and what we can do for her, why she would vote for a Democrat. You know, that, that's what we need to think about. And we don't spend enough time talking about it. So, no. and- so we started here, but we yeah. should. Um, and, we're, you know, every time we ask a Democrat who we have on the show, politician, they say they do the front end automation. This is a problem. Here's the problems we have. And we need good answers on that. And so far, you know, I think. Some of the the roots of some of the answers are there, as we just went over. But I think we have not we, we haven't gotten there yet. Yeah, it's it's um the be, the seeds are there to some right. Of this like stuff. like it, this isn't like we're not. I don't <laughs> think the answer to all these questions is going to be some unknown giant single solution. It's going to be a collection of. It's similar actually to climate change in that it seems insurmountable, but then you look and you realize actually it's a collection of steps. Each one is possible and reasonable. But taken together makes a massive difference in people's lives. And I think I think that the better deal for all the criticism it got was an important first step. I wonder how big of a deal we can make about monopolies and consolidation. How I, I have a you know, I don't know like how much that'll appeal to people. I, I know that everybody hates their cable company, you know, and I know everybody hates the airlines, yeah. but I don't know if that if people can grab onto that because you know, anyone who claims to, to think this is easy or that they are confident in their way to address these problems or even talk about these problems uh, is not being honest. Yeah. Well, hopefully we can have a good faith debate about this. I think, you know what, John? I it, think we already have started let's, one. Let's, now, let's go, <laughs> now let's go back to Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> now, yeah, wonderful. Hashtag jobs. <laughs> 
All right. That's all the time we have for today. Is it? It is. That's a shame. Yeah, we've gone on a little while now. Anyway, that's all. What, anything to, in the outro do you want to say? I talked to Chuck D and Tom Morello. That I was love great. It leave it. I love the episode. I listened, was a, to it. Was, I listened to it on the flight home yesterday. Love it leave it. It's coming along, guys. If it's you haven't checked it out in a while, it's got... It, no, but it, you know, look, you launch a show, you try, you learn. You know, I've never hosted a political chat show at a comedy club once a week, and now I have, and I like it. Okay. Uh, John, how are you? I'm great. The music is going. <laughs> We're in the outro. <laughs> This is me procrastinating from going to work. Well, we have to go do some ads now. Oh, yeah. All right. We're going to go do ads. Bye, guys. (laughs) It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today.